0: Lord, you have said that your word would not return void. So we ask for your blessing as we open the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. I prepare for a Bible study every week, but I've discovered that preparing a sermon is quite different. In a Bible study, if you don't get through all your notes, you just pick it up next week. With a sermon, I've got to somehow cram it all in here (laughs) today. I'm not like my dad, I guess. He seems to be ready for anything. He's a retired pastor, and now in his mid-80s, even though he's no longer a pastor, he still gets asked to do many of the funerals in a 50-mile radius around the church he once pastored. And I think that's probably not unexpected. Uh, recently, he was doing a funeral service, and the family had planned a lot of different parts to the funeral, uh, probably too many and uh, They had a photo slideshow that went on and on, and they passed the microphone around and By the time Dad was asked to come up, it had already been close to two hours, and he could see that people were starting to fade so when he got up front, he said. Uh, He said, would you like the short funeral message or the long one? And everybody froze. So he said, okay, how many of you would like the long version? Nobody moved. So he said, okay, we're going to do the short version. And he said the following, life is short, death is sure, sin is the cause, and Christ is the cure. And he waited a second, let that sink in, and then he repeated it. Life is short, death is sure, sin is the cause, and Christ is the cure. And he walked off the stage, out the back door, got in his car and went home. About two weeks later, he was asked to do another funeral, and when the Wife of the deceased asked him, she said, and we don't want the short version. (laughs) I guess they wanted to get their money's worth, I don't know. I thought the short version was pretty good. I could offer you that choice this morning, but it doesn't really matter since I only have one version, (laughs) and I have no idea how long this will take. You'll notice you have an outline on your bulletin, and it's uh, not too far off except for the scripture passage. Uh, that's just one part that we're going to be covering. We're going to go over a lot of scripture today. You can try to keep up, or you can just listen. It's up to you. I will tell you that uh, when we switch to two main passages, I'll tell you so you can turn there. For the rest, I would suggest you just listen as I read. So We're going to move through it fairly quickly. Let me start off by saying this message today is for Christians. If you're a Christian, you may have wondered, okay, I'm a child of God, I'm going to live forever with Christ in heaven, so why has he left me here in this world? What am I supposed to do now? A couple of answers come to mind right away. The first one is God has made it our job as Christians to share the good news of the gospel with the people we meet, and that's the answer you usually hear. <clears throat> now God could have done this a totally different way. I thought about this some. He could have written the gospel in the sky, so that every time you go outside, there it is, in your language, the gospel message. Then when someone becomes a Christian, they instantly vanish and go straight to heaven. Now that would make you sit up and pay attention, right? I think that's how God should have done it. But he didn't ask me. Instead, he decided to use Christian people, flawed as we are, for this important task of sharing the gospel message with the unsaved world. Another answer that we don't talk about quite as often is embodied in the word sanctification. It's a big word. It doesn't seem very exciting. It's not flashy. In fact, it's hardly ever talked about in church sermons. But I started thinking about sanctification a few months ago, and since then, almost every time I read the Bible, I find references to this concept, uh, and more often than I expected. When you start to see something repeatedly in Scripture, and sometimes from multiple sources, you need to slow down and pay attention. Usually that's a sign God is trying to teach you something. So I want to spend some time this morning looking at the concept of sanctification. Before we try to understand it and what it means to each of us, I want to make sure you understand one thing, that if you're not a Christian, then sanctification will have no particular meaning to you. Why? Because it's not for you. So if you're here and you're thinking, well, I'm really not sure I'm a Christian, or maybe you say, I know I'm not a Christian, but I... Come with my family. I like the people here. Um, and this is not really for you. But I want to spend a few minutes talking about that. It's the most important question for your li- of your life. I guarantee that. Because it determines where you will spend all eternity. With Christ in heaven or without him in hell. Now that's kind of Harsh but it's very clear in God's word. So let's first look at a few passages from the Bible that talk about salvation, Then I'm going to tell you how I became a Christian and hopefully illustrate how and what happened to me. I'm going to read some passages from the Gospel of John, very familiar, and hopefully you'll see a pattern in these verses. By the way, all these are quotes from Jesus himself. And he says the same thing over and over, starting in John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whosoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Then down to John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And then another chapter, John 6 and verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. John records those quotes from Jesus, and now I'll read a passage from Romans, chapter 10, from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Starting in verse 8, But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Do you see the common thread in these passages? Those who believe in Jesus are saved. So now you may ask, how do I know if I really believe? Well, I'm going to tell you how I became a Christian. Each Christian here in this room has their own story about how God met with them personally and gave them the faith to believe. Here's my story. I grew up in a Christian home. My father was the pastor of the Palermo Christian Church. And so our whole family was there in church whenever the doors were open. I can remember very well to this day at age seven, on a Sunday after we got home from church, my father sat down with me in the living room and explained that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was sinless, that he died on the cross to pay for my sins, that he rose from the grave, and that he offered salvation to me if I believed that these things about him. I said, yeah, I believe that. And I prayed and told God I believed that. My father said, well, you're a Christian. Many of you may have a similar story. One of the best ways for you to know if you're truly a Christian or not is if God starts to transform your life. Sometimes it's really easy to see that transformation. Sometimes it's not. I remember hearing testimonies from people who were saved from lives of alcoholism or drug addiction, and their stories of transformation were amazing. And I used to think, as a teenager, I wish I had a testimony like that. So powerful. As I got older, I realized how blessed I am that I didn't have to go through that first before I found Christ. The problem for me at age seven was I didn't see a major transformation. Not that I was a bad kid, I was, I was just already doing everything Christians do. It's all I knew in my family. I went to church every week, Sunday morning, both Sunday school and church, Sunday night service, Wednesday evening prayer meeting, we were back, Friday evening youth group, I'd have to say there was no conscious change in my life at all that I was aware of. Now, skip ahead a few years. Uh, I left home at the age of 12 to work summers at a Bible camp in the town of Brooks, Maine, Camp Fairhaven. How many of you have heard of Camp Fairhaven? Quite a few. Now, at that time, uh, this was the best Christian camp in the state of Maine. Hear any rumbles in the crowd here? Though there may be some here who disagree with that, Uh, many in this part of the state think that Camp Berea was the best. I'd be happy to meet with you after to explain to explain why you're wrong. But uh, just kidding. At the age of 16, I was a camp counselor, and every summer. Week by week, I shared the gospel with campers in my cabin. We had eight at a time. And many of them prayed a similar prayer that I did when I was seven. Interestingly enough, for years, the age group that I worked with was seven-year-olds. The first camping week of every summer was called training week. Only counselors were there, no campers. And we spent the week working on getting everything ready for the next week when campers would arrive. Lots of cleaning, repairing. I'm sure all camps go through this, trying to get ready. And then at night, we would attend uh, sessions all together, the counselors, with special speakers who would come in and teach us, preparing for the summer. This was always a great week of getting to know the other counselors. Uh, Camper Haven is located on opposite sides of lake, I'll, I'll pronounce it the way most people do, Pasagasawakig. The Indians call it Pasagasawakig. Um, see, I'm multilingual. So The boys were on one side, and the boys' counselors were called Uncle. Thus, I was Uncle Mark. And the girls were on the other side, and the lady counselors were called Miss. So training week was also when we got to meet the lady counselors. Like I said, it was a great week. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) that is where Uncle Mark met Miss Chan. During that week, there was a counselor on the boys' side that I very quickly realized I didn't like. Did not like him. There was a falseness about him. A holier than thou attitude that really rubbed me the wrong way. And one night there were several of us together in a cabin, and he said very casually, kind of like this, Why don't we all read some scripture together? And it made me really angry. That's kind of a strange reaction for a Christian to have. And I got up and I left the cabin. I stood outside in the dark under the stars in my anger and God picked that time to get my attention. It's probably a time when I would least expect him to speak to me. I was standing there and a new thought came into my mind. It was like blinders fell off my eyes and I said, wait a minute. This whole Christian thing is not just something my family has always done. This is real. And for that moment I decided, I don't care what my family does. I'm going to live my life with God's help in a way that would please him. And my life began to be transformed. I have a question for you. When did I become a Christian? When I prayed and told God that I believed the claims of Christ when I was seven? Or when I was 16? How many think age seven? A few shy ones starting to... How many think 16? Well, here's the answer. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Almost 50 years later, um, I do know that Christian life started to take on a whole new meaning to me when I was 16. If you're hearing my voice today and you don't have a personal relationship with the living God through his son, Jesus... And if God isn't on you right now like he did on me that night, that this is real. If he's just now giving you the faith that you need to believe, then you need to pray to him and tell him right now and begin the life-changing transformation that he wants to do in you. We're going to do something very strange here. I'm going to give you a chance to do just that at the beginning of the service instead of at the end. I'd like everyone to bow their heads I'm going to give you a moment to make that important choice. Pray to God right now and tell him that you finally understand the blinders have been removed. You can see clearly that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for you and rose again, and someday he will return to take you home to heaven. God can do that in an instant, just like he did for me. So we'll just wait just a minute. If you've made that life-changing decision this morning, I want you to let me know after the service so that we can pray for you and help you in any way that we can on your new journey. If you're listening at home today on Facebook, contact the church office. Let them know of your decision. Don't be shy about this. Every Christian here will be thrilled to hear it, and you will not believe what God wants to do for you in the rest of your life can open your eyes. <clears throat> and for now, for you that have just put your faith in Christ, sanctification will now have much more meaning to you. We'll start off with a definition. And this is a, a, a real nice dictionary definition. Sanctification means the process of separating ourselves from the profane things of this world of concentrating and dedicating ourselves to God and then purifying ourselves from sin through repentance and renunciation to renew our soul and cleanse our spirit. Now, that's kind of a long technical definition. It's actually correct. It's very accurate. Let me say it in a different way. Sanctification means that we are to be set apart from one thing and to another. Separate ourselves from one thing to another. Or another way to think of it is, in Scripture we're told to turn from sinful behavior and turn to holy living, or becoming more and more like Jesus. That is our job after we become a follower of Christ. So that's the process of sanctification, turning from and turning to. It's not a class you sign up for, and when you graduate in two weeks, now you're sanctified. Rather, we spend the rest of our lives on this earth working on that sanctification process. Romans 8.29 gives us the goal of sanctification. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That's the goal. and then to spend our lives studying the Bible to learn more and more about Christ, how else can we conform to him if we don't know about him? Our goal is to become holy as he is holy. Now, there are actually three states of sanctification. This is a little technical, but bear with me. It won't take long. There's the moment when we first become a Christian, when we're declared sanctified by God. Now, wait a minute, how can that be if we spend the rest of our lives working on our sanctification? The answer is that the moment we are saved, Jesus puts his righteousness on us like a coat. Think of putting on a coat of righteousness so that if we died the next day after being saved, when God looks at us, he would see the righteousness of Christ and we would be welcomed into heaven. This is called positional sanctification. The thief on the cross next to Jesus is the best example of this. When he died that night, Jesus didn't say to him, I'm sorry, you definitely believed in me, but you just didn't have enough time to build up sanctification. No, what did he say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Because of his good works, he didn't have any. He was saved by his faith alone in Jesus, and that's all he had. Because of his faith, he had that code of righteousness of Christ, and that was more than enough. So that is positional sanctification. That's the first kind. The second kind is the lifelong process of becoming holy as he is holy, and that's what we're going to focus on today. But there's also a third, and it happens when we die, and we leave this world, and we see Christ face-to-face Then we will be like him, for we'll see him as he is. That is our final state of completed sanctification, which is called glorification. Okay, let's go back to the second kind, the lifelong process. How does this work? Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness... And worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Verse 12 that I just read is a miniature snapshot of sanctification. We have to turn from ungodliness and worldly desires and turn to living sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So that's a little example of sanctification in one verse. Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Now, I want to pause right there for a moment. Verse 14 says that these people, these sanctified people, are zealous for good deeds And some people are confused by this. Are good deeds somehow required as part of salvation? That's not a silly question. vast majority of religions in the world are based on having to do good works to earn their way to heaven. According to the Bible, this is a pointless waste of time. We can never be good enough based on our own achievements of Righteousness. Very important that you understand the proper relationship between salvation and good works. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 makes this very clear. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now that makes it pretty clear, right? Saved by faith alone, no works involved. So where do our good works come in? And that's verse 10, right after this. It says, for we are his workmanship. So stop right there. We are his workmanship because we're saved by faith. Faith that God gives us. So now that we're saved, what happens? I'll start again in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them salvation first leading to good works must understand that your good works will never save you now you can all turn in your bibles to colossians chapter 3 i think that's what it says in the on your bulletin colossians chapter 3 we're going to start in verse 1 This passage is all about sanctification. Colossians 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. That verse right there, that is sanctification. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. This is where we are as Christians. We died in Christ. We were raised up in Christ. We will be revealed with Christ in glory. Christ is in us, and we are in him as Christians. And because of that, we now get to verse 5. This is where we get sanctification process here. Remember, we turn from something and we turn to something else. The next three verses give us a list of what we're to turn away from. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. All of us as Christians know about these sins. Many of them were our sins before we were saved. Now the list continues. Verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. Abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Okay, let's stop right there. This is, this is tough. How can I turn away from all these sins? The next two verses are the hinge between this bad list, things that we are to avoid, and then what we are to turn to. The last part of verse 9 says, Since you laid aside the old self with its evil pr- practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Great verses. And because of those verses, we now get to verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with hymns, psalms, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Kind of sounds like going to church, doesn't it? That last verse. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That is an amazing set of two different lists. How are, we gonna, how are we doing at turning from sinful lifestyles that are mentioned here, specific sins that were mentioned? How about the list of holy lifestyle choices? How am I doing? How are you doing? At this point, you may be thinking, this is very difficult. I don't know how I can do it. And the answer is, in our own strength, I can't do it. Not the way God wants me to. Turn now in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. And I had intended to go through this whole passage because it gives another beautiful set of two lists, what to turn from and what to turn to. But I realized we'd be here till supper time if I keep going. So um, I just want to catch the first couple of verses Galatians five sixteen says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's the answer. Everyone who is a Christian has the Holy Spirit living within them to help them in this process of sanctification. And then verse 17 is interesting. I've got this verse wrong my whole life. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. I've always recognized the battle going on here, but when it says you don't do the things you please, I always thought, yeah, I'm not doing what God wants me to do. I, I keep failing. It's really the opposite. Because of that battle going on and the power of the spirit, I don't do what I please, which is not the good things. What I would want to do is what in my flesh I want to do, the sinful things. I don't have to do those. The rest of this passage down through verse 25 give another beautiful example of what we're to turn from and turn to. And so that's going to be homework for you. You take that home this week and read down through there. You'll see, what should I be turning from? What should I turn to? I've saved my favorite sanctification passage for last. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. My Bible has a title for this section. It's called Growth in Christian Virtue. Well that's what sanctification is. Simon Peter, verse 1, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. I love that verse. This letter is from the Apostle Peter, one of the 12, who spent three years traveling with and being taught by Jesus face to face. He saw Jesus crucified. He then saw the risen Christ and spent time with him, ate with him, fellowshiped with him. This Peter is writing a letter to those of us who have received a faith of the same kind as theirs. Think of that. How can that be with all the advantages they had of being with him every day? Because God gave the apostles faith to believe, and he gives us the same faith to believe in Christ today. Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Wow. How do we get all of this? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust that last phrase gives us what we're supposed to turn from. The corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, verse 5 tells us what we're to turn to. And this is a very interesting uh, way that Peter phrases this. He's going to give us a list, but one builds upon another. For this very reason, applying all diligence... In your faith, now this is the God-given faith that saved us, supply moral excellence. Now the word supply here means add to. So in each of these lists, he's going to continue to add on, as if it wasn't difficult enough. He's going to add on one by one. So to your faith, add moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, add knowledge. We've already looked at knowledge in verses 2 and 3, knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, and we increase knowledge by reading God's word, studying it. And in your knowledge, add self-control. And in your self-control, add perseverance. We started this list with the word diligence. Now we're adding perseverance. And in your perseverance, add godliness. And in your godliness, add brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, add love. Now that's quite a list. You can see why we need to be diligent and persevere as we make those changes in our life. And Peter draws it all together here in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing it's not just that you have these qualities but they're ever increasing more and more the rest of your life you never reach a point where you can say i'm finished let me start from the beginning of verse 8 again for if these qualities are yours and are increasing they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our lord jesus christ Once again, like bookends, the knowledge of Christ is our focus in sanctification. Our goal is to be like Jesus. This concept of sanctification being an ongoing process with qualities that are ever increasing is a theme throughout the New Testament. I call this the more and more principle. You'll find it often. It's not enough just to love, but we're We're told to love more and more. And you'll see this all through the New Testament. And it's very important to the component of sanctification. All right, I want everybody to take a deep breath. I've covered a lot of scripture. Um, I want to finish up with a story that I hope will bring this all together, and hopefully in a way you can remember. All my life, I heard about canoeing the mighty Allagash River in northern Maine. By the way, has anybody else done that here? Two in the back, excellent. Here? Oh, good. So I can't make anything up now. You know all about this. So I always wanted to do it, but I didn't know anyone who had done it, so I really didn't know how to start. And a few years ago, I found out that right here in our church, was an Allagash expert, Mr. Dave Hubley. So I started to meet with Dave to understand what the trip was like and how to prepare for it. He told me everything I needed to know, some things I didn't want to know. Uh, He told me which campsites were the best, which ones to avoid and why. He even told me, he let me use his prized canoe And he had built insulated storage compartments in the canoe we could put all of our food and supplies in. Fantastic. He even wrote notes that I took with me so I could refer to them on the trip. It was kind of like having the Allagash Bible as a resource on this trip. Dave's advice on how to navigate the river, just like we have God's word and the Holy Spirit to guide us in our life of sanctification. Now, I hope Dave is not listening today, because if he hears that he's been compared to the Bible or the Holy Spirit, I'll never hear the end of it. Uh, So you probably shouldn't tell him. Now, the Allagast trip is not for the faint of heart. It's a dangerous trip. One of the things you realize out there fairly quickly is that if you get hurt, there is no one to come and save you. You've got to get out on your own. My two sons and my son-in-law and I made the 90-mile trip, and we only saw one other group of people in four days. So you are alone out there. Also, the river is filled with sharp rocks and violent sections of fast water, and you have to learn which way to turn your canoe in a split second, or you'll be smashed on a rock, possibly thrown into the icy waters. If that isn't bad enough, about two-thirds of the way, you reach the mighty waterfall, where the river drops through a tangle of huge, sharp boulders, 40 feet, and you can hear it in the distance from far away. You you fear the waterfall long before you get to it, because you can hear it. A canoe that gets too close and gets caught in the rush of water going over the falls will not end up in one piece. Now this morning, I want you to think about canoeing the 90 miles of the Allagash Waterway as being like living the Christian life. I want you to think of all those rocks down the entire 90 miles of river as being the sinful life choices that we've read about in these sections this morning. We need to be diligent and constantly aware of where they are so we can turn from them And as we turn away from them, we turn to smooth water. And that represents the list of godly lifestyle choices that we read. Choices that lead to holiness, which is what we're called to follow. There's another concept you may have heard of, and it's let go and let God. Anybody heard that? Uh, The idea is just to sit back and let God do all the work in my life. We don't have to do anything. How well do you think that will work on the Allegash River of my sanctification process? Not too good. It reminds me when we were within sight of the end of the Allegash River where it flows into the St. John, we were literally a half mile from the end of our trip. We had not tipped over a canoe in 89 and a half miles of river. At this point, the river was wide, maybe 300 feet. Both sides were smooth and fast with no white water. But right in the middle was a thrash of white water and visible rocks. And I remember seeing Dan and Jordan, (laughs) Jordan's in the back there, zipping down the right-hand side, smooth as could be. And Joe and I were looking at that mess in the middle. And we both saw at the same time, hey, right through the middle of those rocks, And white water is a smooth bulge of fast water. Let's just shoot right through the middle. And so we did. Right in the middle of that smooth bulge of rushing water just under the surface was a giant boulder. We slammed into it, instantly were turned sideways and were thrown into the water. We had relaxed for just a moment and stopped turning away from the rocks and we paid a price for that. With that picture in your mind, I want you to think about pushing out into the beginning of the Allegash River waterway with 90 miles to go ahead of you and setting your paddle down on the bottom of the canoe and leaning back with your hands behind your head, maybe close your eyes and feel the warm sun. I'm just gonna let go and let God. What do you think would happen in that journey down the Allegash with your paddle on the floor? Scares me to think about it. I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but I would ask the question how is your journey of sanctification going? How are you doing reading your guidebook? How can we emulate the life of Christ if we aren't learning more about him? I want to encourage you this morning to take up the challenge of the lifelong process of sanctification. Are you drifting? down your spiritual allagash right now, bumping into one rock after another. Pick up your paddle and get to work today. It's us prayer. Father, thank you for we don't have to make this journey without a guide. You have given us your word and the Holy Spirit living within us. Peter has told us that your divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.